This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Monday morning show for you, including rapid testing for COVID at YVR. Vancouver International Airport has teamed up with WestJet and UBC. Passengers on WestJet flights can get a COVID-19 test right at the airport. Results in about 20 minutes. Are you ready to fly again? Would you be willing to travel again if passengers are tested for COVID-19. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Tamara Vorman. She is the president and CEO of Vancouver International Airport. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yes, good morning, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about how this is this is working out. This system is up and running at YVR right now, right? I mean, you're testing for COVID at, today at the airport, correct? Yes, we are. Yeah, we okay. started on uh, Friday was our first day. Tested 38 people uh, on Friday, and uh, we're open as of 6.30 this morning doing the same today. Okay, how is this working? It's voluntary, right? Yes, it is. So it's it's absolutely free and on a voluntary basis for anyone departing YVR on a domestic flight uh, flying with WestJet. So that'd be anywhere in Canada. You can register beforehand with WestJet or if you decide to do it right here when you come to the airport, as long as you're here 75 minutes before your flight takes, right. as you said, about 20 minutes end to end, you get your test and you're on your way. Okay, do they do the test right at the airport, or do you have a facility set up there to do this now? Yeah, what we have is we've bought uh, something that we're calling a pod. It's actually a converted shipping container, and it's absolutely to the highest health standards. It's right out on the curb, just outside the terminal. So what happens is passengers come in to the WestJet check-in desk. If they want to participate in the, in the, uh, and get a rapid test, then they're escorted over to the side where uh, one of the researchers from Providence and UBC greet them, take their information, walk them into the pod, take the test. Passengers who have had it have said it's, it's painless, it's not nearly as uh, nasty as sometimes people think, and uh, it's really very quick. They wait for 15 minutes, get the results, and they're on their way. Okay, is this the nasal swab test? Yeah. It is. We're actually uh, doing two tests, I know. Uh, but the, uh, the, the passengers have told us that it's really, it's really not that bad. It's very, uh, it's very quick. And then we're also asking them to do an oral rinse as well, because we're quite interested in testing whether the oral rinse could be something that we use in the future. So we're testing a test with the oral rinse, but the actual test itself is with a nasal swab. Okay, talking to uh, YVR CEO Tamara Verman about COVID-19 rapid testing at the airport. So it is a, a voluntary system, as you mentioned, for people departing on a, a WestJet flight. Uh, what happens if you, you agree to take the COVID-19 test and you test positive? Absolutely. So certainly we haven't had any of those situations yes but of course we're uh, yet of course we're prepared for it and that's why it's important that it be done only for departing passengers here at YVR so if you do uh, get what they're calling a non-negative screen on the rapid test then you are uh, escorted we do do the full PCR test here you're safely returned to your home where you'll await the results usually 24 to 48 hours those results are processed at St. Paul's Hospital uh, and then if you are, in fact, positive, then you'll be following the normal protocols. If you're negative, then WestJet has arranged to rebook your flight free of charge, and you can come back and you're on your way. Right. Okay. So if you're positive, you don't get on the flight. If, you you're, if, if you test negative, I assume you just go on your way. You get on the, you get on the plane and take your flight, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So how many did you do on Friday, did you mention? 38. 38. What? Is that, what can you? What is that as a percentage of all the people who who are eligible to take the test? Do you know, I actually don't know that number, yeah. but uh, we have seen that the test it was new, so people weren't aware of it. Uh, yeah. I expect that we'll have an increased number now that people are aware of it. As you know, there's not as many people flying. Only right. those who need to fly for essential purposes are flying. So we're only seeing about sixteen percent of our total uh, volumes here at YVR today versus say, yeah. uh, the same day last year. But 
so far we're seeing quite a few people are a interested in getting the test uh, and b they want to do their part you know they want to which is a nice part uh, of this process they right. say yeah i'd be interested in participating so that i can contribute to the knowledge base that we have about whether right. rapid tests can work okay so it's a, a pilot project it's what is the purpose of, of this program well, one of the things we're interested in is uh, whether or not the processes that we have already for security screening, you know, when you think about it, you log on on your phone and then you go through the CATSA security screening at the airport and then you we check your ID uh, before you get on the plane. The security screening that we've all had in place since 9-11 is all done before you get on the plane, such that when you get on the plane, you're confident that, uh, that it's a uh, safe and secure uh, aircraft. We think that there's a similar process that could be introduced for health screening, such that by the time everybody gets on the flight, uh, they are 100% confident that it's uh, safe and healthy to do so. We do know that there's been no transmissions of COVID aboard aircraft in Canada since the pandemic started, but this adds another layer to make sure, from belt and suspenders point of view, that people are absolutely confident and uh, and willing to fly. Right, Right. but if if it's a, a voluntary test... Uh, a lot of people would decide not to take it, right? So, I mean, if if you if you want people to be confident that everyone on the plane is tested negative for COVID, would you not have to have a mandatory test? Absolutely, in the future, that's a yeah. that's a potential direction. But this is just a pilot project right. to understand whether the test works, how it works, how we can introduce it in the uh, airport context, making sure that we're partnering with UBC and Providence. You know, some of the best researchers in this field uh, in the world so they can test the evidence and the real-life samples that we get and make sure that it is safe for broader application. If it is, then we have to apply to the provincial and federal governments for it to uh, be more mandated across the country. 15 to 20 minutes, pretty pretty fast turnaround for a rapid test. How accurate is the test? The test is uh, between 80 and 95% accurate. So one of the things that is being tested right now is is there a variation in the accuracy? So certainly, if we do start to see higher rates of accuracy, it is a test that potentially not only could be used uh, in an airport context, but at schools, universities, uh, in community, it, it potentially has quite a broad application. Right. Speaking to YVR President Tamara Verman, you mentioned that um, there's been no documented transmission of COVID on a on a, a plane, an air, a flight in Canada, but we continue to read about cases of people who are tested, who have tested positive for COVID, arriving on flights uh, into YVR and other rest and other uh, airports across Canada. Are, are are those examples of people who what probably caught the virus before they got on the flight and came to Canada? Is that what's going on there? That is, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, there's the the issue with travel, as uh, as we know it, uh, aboard an aircraft is not actually. The safety while you're either in the airport and on the plane, it's what happens at either end in community. And certainly we're seeing the transmissions as a result of uh, the movement of people between communities, uh, whether it's next door or, uh, or across uh, the world. But actually on the aircraft, there have been no uh, documented cases of transmission for anybody who has uh, had the need of uh, of traveling since COVID, you'll yeah. know that the health and safety protections uh, aboard uh, an airplane these days are are the highest they've ever been. Yeah, is that kind of counterintuitive? Do you think in the, in the minds of a lot of people? Because I think we've been led to believe in the past that uh, airplanes are kind of a you know a germ incubator, and you get on there and it's it's easy to it's easy to catch a cold or catch a, something worse. If you get on a plane. So, I mean, if we've had documented cases of people who are positive traveling on planes, but we've had no documented cases of transmission, what, what should the public take away from that? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the challenges is, is traveling during the time of COVID is, is one of the best kept secrets. You know, we all know what it's like to go to a grocery store or have our hair cut or eat at a restaurant during COVID. But very few of us have had the travel experience because, of course, the travel restrictions that have put in place um, to protect uh, the health and safety. And so we can't quite imagine how different it is, but it really is quite different. There's filters that are on the aircraft that have been installed. They're the highest level. They're to surgical quality, same type you get in an operating room. UV light screening in bathrooms to sanitize to the highest molecular level, uh, cleaning in bathrooms, uh, onboard aircraft. And then, of course, uh, no open 
containers of beverage, everything sealed, PPE throughout. So it's a very, very secure and safe from a health point of view. Okay, last question for you. We're nearing the end of this year. I think most people will be glad to see the back of 2020, and we're looking forward to a new year with maybe a vaccine on the horizon. What is your sort of outlook for the for travel and for YVR into 2021? Are you hoping for, like, what, what's your scenario? Are you hoping for a turnaround here? Yeah, certainly if there is a widespread vaccine, we do know that there is a huge pent-up demand for people to travel once they're confident and it is safe uh, to do so and border restrictions have opened. We've been tracking people's uh, preferences for travel during COVID since the pandemic started. And I can tell you that there's an overwhelming desire for people to travel again, to see friends and families, to have those travel experiences, to make business contacts. And so we do expect a rebound uh, if uh, if a vaccine is widely yep. available. Okay, interesting stuff. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk pot now. We all know that cannabis is legal across Canada now. Everyone knows that. But did you know that there are major marijuana busts and raids still going on in British Columbia and all across the country? Check out some of these headlines here in Merritt, B.C., at the beginning of uh, November, police say they found a massive grow operation just outside of Merritt alongside Highway 8. They say they destroyed as many as 100,000 cannabis plants. Holy smokes. They put out a news release saying that the value of the uh, p- drugs are estimated at $8 million. Also in Merritt, uh, police say they arrested 16 people. At another grow up, 800 plants found growing in a warehouse in various stages of growth. This is going on all across Canada. Cannabis is legal, but lots of grow up busts still going on. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Jack Lloyd. He is a cannabis lawyer and advocate. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Jack. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for doing this. Are there a lot of these raids going on all across Canada? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I think that I, I would say that there are more happening this year than in previous years. Uh, and so what's interesting about that is is now that it's legal, it seems like there are more raids on uh, uh, cannabis grow operations. Um, although what I will say is unique is that it appears that medical cannabis gardens and industrial uh, hemp license holders are being targeted with uh, more regularity now. Uh, you know, typically uh, raids on cannabis grow ops were seasonal, so we're in the harvest season at present. Uh, and so you would see an increase in raids on grow ops sort of in the, the October, November period. Um, but uh, we are seeing more now, and it's unclear why that is, although there are some, some potential serious political considerations at play as why? to why this is happening. Why would there be more raids at this time of year? Is it because it's harvest time? Yes. Yeah, that is precisely why. So it's easier for police to identify and target these gardens. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, obviously, cannabis is legal in the country, but in order to produce large-scale cannabis operations, you have to have a license from the government, right? So what the police are busting here are unlicensed illegal grow ops, right? Uh, No, actually. What's going on is that police are... Uh, targeting license holders and executing raids. It's unclear why or what grounds they're doing it, but the, I have yet to see one of these raids occur in BC on large uh, uh, commercial-looking uh, cannabis crops where the, the individuals did not hold a license. So uh, it's deeply troubling because typically these licenses are held by individuals that suffer from from chronic ailments and they're growing the cannabis for personal medical use or uh, for um, one to two other patients to use. So the the way that these uh, raids are occurring is is quite frankly deeply troubling and uh, remains to be seen where the police are getting their information uh, and whether or not there's some kind of uh, cooperation going on between Health Canada and law enforcement for the purpose of targeting medical cannabis patients, which is really kind of what's troubling about it. Let me play a couple of clips here for you, Jack, at your reaction. This is, uh, you hear the voice here of Ryan Hogan. He's an inspector with the uh, York Regional Police in Ontario, because these raids are going on across the country. And here he is talking about cannabis investigations there. 
As a result of the investigation, uh, York Regional Police executed 15 search warrants and ultimately seized uh, significant amounts of illegal cannabis, approximately 29,000 plants and approximately 2,900 pounds of harvested illegal cannabis that was destined for the criminal markets. So we're not talking about legal cannabis. We're not talking about cannabis that's coming from legal dispensaries or from the Ontario Cannabis Store, or even for the cannabis that's uh, lawfully uh, produced by people for their own personal consumption. We're talking here about illicit cannabis and the problems and uh, other crimes that are spawned by this criminal activity. Okay, that's Inspector Ryan Hogan there in, in Ontario. So, Jack, when he's talking about large illegal commercial operations for destined for illegal trafficking markets, I mean, there must be some of that. There must be a lot of that going on, isn't there? I mean, there's still a le- big illegal grow-ops going on, surely. That Inspector Hogan was speaking about there did involve some gardens uh, that, that did not hold any sort of valid licensing. Um, but again, uh, the risk is is that police tend to lump the licit in with the illicit. What's what's quite humorous about that statement is that the officer is stating legal dispensaries, and of course, under the legislation, you cannot call a legal cannabis retail outlet a dispensary. So even the officer is is inadvertently speaking about the gray market. <laughs> right. Okay. If we're going to have legal cannabis in the country. Uh, you obviously have to have a a licensing and regulatory system. Would you agree with that? Or do you think like anyone should be able to just grow as much weed as they want? I, I think that largely this should be viewed through a regulatory lens. This is part of the problem for law enforcement is that rather than simply leaving production uh, constitutionally down to provincial regulation, they, the, the federal government elected to continue regulating cannabis using the criminal law power uh, under the Constitution Act. And so as a result, it puts law enforcement in a position where uh, they, they have to investigate it as a criminal offense. But at its core, and I mentioned this earlier about sort of the political element of this, really this is about tax. And the government is seeking essentially to, to, to arrest uh, their way into market dominance over the the cannabis space, right? But I mean, the system we have now is uh, if you want to grow legally for commercial purposes, you must have a, a a commercial government license. So, if someone has gone through kind of all the hoops and uh, all the process of getting legally licensed, wouldn't they be within their rights to be angry to see someone else growing large scale marijuana crops without a license? Uh, well, possibly, I suppose, or I think a, a more accurate term would be jealous. But the, the core issue is why is the market preferring these other products to the, the regulated products? And that's the really serious question that needs to be answered. And I think that the, the real answer to it is the fact that overregulation has caused federal commercial producers of cannabis to struggle in this industry. So a lot of them are going bankrupt. A lot of them are unable to... to to operate profitably, and a lot of that is down to overregulation. So, in my view, um, more people should be given commercial federal licenses. A serious problem is that vast numbers of parties that absolutely would uh, be regulated and would operate in line with their license are completely unable to become licensed due to the, the security screen protocols and the regulatory hurdles that they face in trying to, to become yeah. licensed commercial producers. Yeah. Let me play another clip here for you from that uh, police inspector in Ontario. And here, here he is touching on a, a subject that you mentioned a little earlier, and that's people who have a medical, a license to grow medical marijuana for personal consumption. And you'll hear this officer here say that in some cases that police feel that this is just a a front for illegal trafficking. But here he is, Ryan Hogan. What we're seeing in terms of the illicit market, the criminal market, is the exploitation of the medical licensing regime, where people can receive a, a medical license authorizing them to produce, you know, as much as over 350 plants supposed to be for personal consumption. Now, we find this very hard to believe that someone could produce that much cannabis for their own personal consumption. Uh, we've, we've put the math into the work in trying to uh, determine just how much cannabis that would produce and how much someone would have to consume, and the numbers don't add up. That amount of cannabis, in those circumstances, is being exploited by the criminal market, is being produced in order to be trafficked on the criminal market.
Okay. Okay. What do you think about what he said there, Jack? That he's saying that people with a, a medical marijuana license are actually trafficking on the, in the criminal market. It's part of a narrative that law enforcement has been putting forward for at least seven years. So it's nothing new. Certainly, it doesn't surprise any uh, anyone, any lawyer uh, that's operating in the cannabis space. But again, in my view, this is largely a political comment. That officer is not an expert in how a sick person consumes their medicine. And certainly, uh, I think that if he actually sat down with someone that that required large amounts of medical cannabis, either for uh, derivative medicinal purposes or for a variety of other purposes, they would come to understand why these licenses look the way they do. And it, it really comes down to the fact that the courts have been very clear that there needs to be reasonable access to medical cannabis for medically approved patients. And uh, a large part of that is the ability to produce that medicinal cannabis yeah. for oneself, uh, both for uh, derivative purposes uh, and uh, uh, cost purposes as well. So uh, I, I disagree, obviously, with the officer. I think it's a vast oversimplification simply to say that because someone requires access to a large amount of medical cannabis, that suddenly they're part of some vast criminal empire. Uh, I think that the courts have been pretty clear that that's incorrect. All right. Welcome back to the show. Legal cannabis. It was supposed to put the illegal marijuana trade out of business, but we continue to see large scale illegal marijuana operations uh, in the country and in British Columbia. There have been huge raids and busts by the police here in the last month or so. My guest is Jack Lloyd. He's a cannabis lawyer. Let's go right to your phone calls here now. Gary and Burnaby. Hiya, Gary. Hi, my friend. I got a problem here. This is a little emotional because my friend has just passed away. He had ALS. The doctor advised him to maybe start trying this marijuana because it might help him. He found out that, yeah, it definitely helped him. Well, the kid down the street was giving him a bag of that stuff for $180 an ounce. He turns around and ran out one day. When I go out to help him play, you know, keep him occupied, I play crib with him. So he uh, he ran out. He asked me to stop by a a local government uh, store to grab him a little bit. You know that it was over twice the price that the young fella down the street sells it to him for? Now, how is somebody in a disability situation living on a disability pension supposed to pay these outrageous rip-off prices that dicks and these government officials have have set up? When you can buy it on the street, it's exactly the same. As a matter of fact, in several instances, he tells me it's better for a half price. Okay. Now, I'm talking about somebody living on a disability pension, not Mr. Dix in his big high office. Okay, Gary, thanks for calling in. All right, Jack, what do you think of that? I mean, do you think that a lot of people are still buying cannabis on the black market for those regions, for those reasons that the caller just outlined, price and quality? Yes, and Gary, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend, and certainly my practice deals primarily with individuals that are dealing with serious chronic ailments like that, and a a great deal of my litigation practice deals with fighting for the rights of of persons like your friend that simply can't afford uh, a lot of the cannabis that's coming from the federally licensed producers. And and part of the the issue is is that those LPs uh, are private companies and often publicly traded companies, so they have no obligation from a healthcare perspective to try to get their prices down or to try to uh, get prices to a point where uh, a person that's on social assistance can afford it. And that's really why personal and designated production licenses exist, and that's why I'm so deeply troubled when folks like Ryan Hogan go on the news and say that all medical cannabis patients are misusing their licenses for nefarious purposes. Well, he didn't, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say all of them are, right? I, I think he suggested I will, that... I'll, I'll just note that a simple search of that officer, he's been saying the same thing for over yeah. two years. So every right. year in August uh, or uh, September and October, he makes the same statement yeah. regarding the yeah. medical cannabis program. So I'll, I'll have to beg to differ in regards to his political point on this issue. Okay, let's go to Barb on the open line in Kamloops. Hi, Barb. Hi. Um, I just want to say that I really do feel sorry for people that are ill and that need medical cannabis, and I agree with the previous caller that it's too expensive uh, in the legal outlets, but I know people that use it, and it actually works to help them, but I also know people who have medical problems and have uh, the allowance to grow, you know, multiple amounts of of, uh, uh, pot 
for their own use, and these same people I know sell it as well. So there is both yeah. going on, not just one. Okay, They're Jack. making a lot of money on the side because they do get way more than they need. Okay, Barb, thanks for the call. Jack, what do you say to that? Certainly that's a consideration that the federal government made when it created these licenses, and that's called diversion. So it's a serious concern in that someone that's producing licit cannabis for themselves then diverts a portion of what they've produced to the market. And, of course, that's illegal, and you can get a very serious criminal charge for that. You can also get a very serious provincial charge in British Columbia pursuant to the Cannabis Control and Licensing Act. So there are laws in place to prevent folks from doing that. But, you know, ultimately, we, we you know, compliance with the law is important. But for a great many sick people, yeah. their ability to access this medicine in some ways may trump uh, some of their their standard okay. goals okay. regarding compliance. We only have one minute left. Let's squeeze in one more call. Roy in Surrey. Hi, Roy. Hi there, bud. I, I listened to this and all I hear is the avoidance of the RCMP exercising their judgment. Uh, I was there when they busted a grow-up in the Shushwap, 1,000 plants over the medical certificate, and I watched them set up the day after, and this has been going on for, what, 15 years What do you think of that? Now? What do you think of that? So well, certainly I, those individuals... I, oh, sorry. Uh, hey, the lawyer... Yeah, okay, okay. Talk, talk, talk about the 8,000 uh, plants and merit. There you go. Okay, 30 seconds, Jack. Uh, so I, I'm, uh, I can't comment on the file uh, uh, from a legal perspective, unfortunately, but what I can say is that certainly it's a big concern if people are misusing their licenses. But if right. someone is sick and requires access to this, the courts have been very clear that they are lawfully entitled to do it, but okay. they're not lawfully entitled to abuse their license. Jack, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, welcome back to the show. The last day of November today, getting closer to the end of the year 2020. Most people will be happy to see the year of COVID go away. Could the year 2021 be the year of the COVID vaccine? There is so much optimism and excitement for the potential of a safe, effective vaccine being rolled out around the world. What a huge story uh, this will be in 2021. As the world gets this vaccine, hopefully, and we get beyond this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But what about the influence of the anti-vaxxers out there, the anti-vax movement? It is a sophisticated one in many respects. Very pleased to welcome to the show now my guest, Paul Gallant. He's uh, written a, a great article on this topic for The Walrus, which I encourage you to check out. The Return of the Anti-Vaxxers. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. Paul, you looked into the anti-vax movement, and I know you, you interviewed some of the leaders in this movement. When I've taken a look at some anti-vax websites in the past, I was surprised at just how slick and sophisticated uh, they, they look or appear. What did, what did you find out about this movement? Uh, I would say, firstly, movement is a bit of a strong word, because I, I do think... Uh, it's you know it's a group of passionate people. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes they're just kind of working in their own vacuum. Uh, a lot of them have done you know so much research, but often it's kind of pursuing facts that kind of back up their beliefs rather than facts that might represent uh, what's really happening and how vaccines can really uh, help a population. Um, yeah. 
also found there's kind of a very big diversity in who they are. I mean, I think there's a bit of a stereotype that it might be, you know, upper middle class, kind of granola eating, kind of health conscious people. But it kind of it's a it's a it's a way of thinking that kind of cuts across many different population groups. Yeah, I know you spoke to some of the leaders and some of the people who were involved in some of these websites. What did they tell you? Um, it, it was an interesting conversation. I, I found mostly, if you poked around a little bit, many of them had had bad experiences with the healthcare system, um, had had uh, experiences that they believed were connected to vaccinations, whether there was any proof of it or not. So often there's a really big emotional motivation to it, kind of uh, also kind of a, a maverick mindset on people who kind of want to uh, get the facts themselves and kind of are anti-expert. Um, and many have, uh, you know, they've all asked some questions and all, often they, even though they haven't talked to each other, they'll give the same answers because they'll go back to the same studies that maybe are outdated or have uh, incorrect information in them. Yeah, do, do you get it to the uh, into the conspiracy theory elements of it as well? I mean, there are people who I guess are concerned about the safety of vaccines, but then there are others who feel like there's there's a bigger agenda at work, and maybe the pandemic was actually planned. Did you hear that kind of that kind of stuff when you spoke to people? Yeah, and it was kind of amazing. There does seem to be again of a repeated thought pattern. You know, you say Bill Gates, and suddenly everybody has the same kind of a, analysis of of how he might have. Started started a pandemic, even though there's no proof of that at all. And yeah. on the contrary, you know, he, he's been very anti anti, uh, or I mean, pro pro uh, getting serious diseases off the face of the earth. Sure. Um, so, the, and a lot of them will tap in from you know vaccinations. They'll tie it into kind of conspiracies of big pharma in general. They can tie it into cons- conspiracies in the tech world. Uh, they make linkages that. Uh, really don't make sense but it makes sense maybe to them emotionally because they've kind of have made this decision that there's kind of nefarious things at work in the world behind the scenes and they just want to have them all connected speaking to paul gallant from the walrus magazine i really uh, recommend his article return of the anti-vaxxers when you're speaking to these anti-vax groups paul you know i you mentioned there may be a i guess a stereotype of people who are just sort of ranting and raving online, but some of these groups have actually launched lawsuits and stuff, right? What kind of, where have those gone? What kind of success or lack thereof have they had in court? Uh, there's one lawsuit in progress now. I don't, it hasn't gone to court as far as I know at this moment, and I think they were fundraising around it. So, I mean, I think papers have been filed or they're prepared to being filed. I mean, partly I think that there is a element of fundraising around launching a court case that does kind of rally people to the cause. Um, yeah. I guess the thing is, will will courts accept it? Will it make progress in the court? That's that's much harder to say. Okay, we're looking forward to the new year. There's a lot of excitement with the vaccines that are being developed and rolled out shortly. What do you think will be the impact of anti-vax groups in Canada to to the rollout of a vaccine in general? I mean, will they be trying to convince people not to take the vaccine, do you think? Um, Definitely they want to stir doubt up about vaccines. And, I mean, certainly there's risk to everything. There's risk to getting in your car and driving to work in the morning. There's risk to crossing the street. So no vaccine is going to be 100% risk-free. Uh, it's highly likely that any vaccine that gets to market is going to be have a very a tiny, minuscule and risk in very unusual cases. Um, but the anti-vaxxers will be playing up that remote possibility as much as they can. And there's a lot of people who have, you know, worries about it, and sometimes the legitimate worries. But when you balance the worries of these exceptional, unusual risks against the the greater good that it can do, uh, it doesn't really make any sense to those two things on the same level yeah no it's interesting to see the the these groups uh trying to flex their muscles i I guess in some ways but on the other side we've got these tremendously encouraging test results from the vaccines that have been developed so far of over 94 percent effective and this is just wonderful news i wonder if that maybe could potentially blunt or or counteract the the arguments of of anti-vaxxers when people look at the effectiveness rating of these vaccines and say, look, I'm going to take it. 
Yeah, but that's assuming there's kind of a logic to it. I would also yeah. think that some of the anti-vaxxers also, you know, don't believe that COVID is real, don't believe that it's a deadly disease. Uh, so, you know, if the vaccine's successful, they would say, well, of course it's, you know, people aren't getting sick. People weren't getting sick to begin with. So, I mean, I, I don't think the hardcore people will change their mind. It, the fact is putting them, contextualizing them so they don't uh, cause other people to get in, in the way of harm. Yeah, do you think that um, the anti-vax movement could imp- impose any kind of barrier or problem with, with the rollout of, of, of a safe, effective vaccine in Canada? I mean, is this something the do you think the government or public health authorities should be concerned about? I mean, I think the government and public health authorities should al- always be concerned about making sure that people's experience with healthcare is positive, uh, to make sure that people understand the risks. And with vaccines, how small the risks are. I think correct information is the the thing that government and public health authorities should be getting out there because it's that's how you combat doubt is with real hard yeah. facts and honesty. Yeah, and it's it's a lot easier these days to spread conspiracy theories online and through social media websites. What do you th- what is the role here of some of these big social media platforms like? YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, what kind of authority or role do they have in, in making sure that dangerous misinformation is, is not spread online? I mean, that, that's a very interesting question. I mean, some social media platforms have made efforts to make it harder to find anti-vaccine material. They've kind of uh, flagged certain hashtags and certain ways of finding information. I do think, you know, people who want to spread that information are going to find some way to do it. I guess the thing is, if they're having to use kind of underground, sneaky methods to circulate it, at least the general population is not going to stumble across it. So probably social media platforms need to kind of maybe do a better, you know, it'll, the, the information might get out among the hardcore one way or the other, but I yeah. think they can help the general population kind of steer away from it. Great job on an important topic. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about that other public health crisis in our province now, the epidemic of illicit drug overdoses. It was a shocking story on the weekend in Vancouver's West End when seven people reportedly overdosed and required medical attention during a party at an apartment complex. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. Good morning, Mike. For more on exactly what happened in the West End over this past weekend, we are now joined by Constable Tanya Vicentine, Media Relations Officer for the Vancouver Police Department. And Constable, can you elaborate more on the details from that incident? Mm-hmm. So on Saturday, we did put out a warning, um, warning the public about a group, like you said, of seven adults who overdosed while consuming uh, cocaine and MDMA at a party in the West End. And I believe it happened on Friday night. So around Two or sorry, 12:20 um, a.m. So early into Saturday morning, uh, our officers were notified by BC Ambulance after they received a call about multiple overdoses at an apartment near Jervis and Davy. So first responders um, attended, including uh, Vancouver Fire and paramedics, and we found five people in serious medical distress. Um, so we gave them multiple doses of naloxone, um, as well as paramedics did that as well. Last month, we saw five people needing medical attention after overdosing at a home together in Surrey. Earlier this month, three people died from a suspected drug overdose in just a 12-hour span once again in Surrey. And now we have this incident in Vancouver from the weekend. Uh, Is this an alarming trend that the public should be aware about right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is just, in addition to what happened in Surrey, this is another example of um, how dangerous it is to um, be ingesting illicit drugs. So, you know, like we said on the weekend, the supply chain is um, obviously contaminated. And so we just want to remind everybody, and that includes people that just like to use recreationally to just be cautious when they are um, consuming some street drugs. Thank you very much. That is Constable Tanya Vicentine from the uh, Vancouver Police Department. Now we're going to connect with Sarah Blythe. She is the executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society here in Vancouver. And Sarah, from my understanding, there is also a new testing product called the Take-Home Fentanyl Testing Strip, which is now available to the public. Can you explain exactly how that works? Yeah, so we do actually have uh, take-home fentanyl test strips which people can test for fentanyl in their cocaine, uh, and it'll come up positive, um, uh, and we can do the test for them as well. 
and then they can know what they're dealing with and decide, well, you know what, I'm, I think I'm taking cocaine, but it comes up as fentanyl, so I think that this isn't something I'm going to take. Or if I do, I'm going to take it at an overdose prevention site to make sure that I'm okay. And, you know, go back to whoever you got those drugs from and tell them that what they're selling isn't, isn't what it's supposed to be. Do you feel like enough people know that they can test their drugs to make sure that it's not laced with anything dangerous? And do you feel that enough people are using this practice? Yeah, I mean, we have drug testing at our site at 58 uh, East Hastings, um, and and people can come down and test their drugs with us, uh, give us a call, and, uh, and, and find out what times there's drug testing available and get their drugs tested just to make sure they'll find out what's in it. They'll know if there's fentanyl or anything that isn't supposed to be in it, and then they can uh, obviously um, have an idea if what they're going to take could be a fatal situation and decide not to take it. And also, uh, you know, the, the drug testing helps keep people accountable. If if people are selling these things that are so terrible, uh, they need to be accountable in some way. Obviously, getting tainted drugs off the street is the solution to all of this, but that really is easier said than done, isn't it? You know, at the overdose prevention site, if people buy the drugs in the neighborhood in the downtown east side, and they come to us and we test it and we see that it's, you know, really, really hot in fentanyl and could kill someone, we can go back to that person and say, listen, this is what's happening here. Um, how could you possibly sell this? This is terrible. Um, get rid of it. And, I mean, that's kind of how we can do it in a small way. But um, obviously it's... Uh, you know, safe supplies is, is, is the solution to that and just making sure people have access to things that are what they are um, in the downtown east side in particular and, uh, and just make sure that uh, people are using safe together. Using alone is the thing that kills people. Well said. She is Sarah Blythe, Executive Director of the Overdose Prevention Society in Vancouver. And I'll remind you that as the holidays are approaching, which doesn't necessarily bring happy thoughts and good feelings to everybody, it's important to stress the need to test those drugs and keep yourself safe. All right, that report from our own John Jang, and John joins me now. John, great job on that story, and I think one of the lessons to be learned there is, I don't know, there may be a perception that fentanyl, everyone's heard about how deadly fentanyl can be, and maybe there's another perception that, you know, street-level heroin uh, is laced with fentanyl, and maybe people think, if I'm not taking heroin, I'm safe. You know, if I'm at a party and someone offers me cocaine or uh, there were reports that people at this party in the West End were doing MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy. So, you know, fentanyl can be in these other drugs, too. Absolutely. It's the party drugs and the recreational stuff that are starting to hurt people right now. And uh, on one hand, like I get it. Times are tough. People just want to have a reason to let loose. And maybe these drugs are a recreational way that you can do those things. But be safe. Be aware. Just know that nothing is 100% safe until you get it tested. And that way you can know for sure. Right. And this was a party in the West End of Vancouver. So again, you know, it sort of goes against stereotypes of the people who are dying, the people who are overdosing, or maybe people who are homeless addicts on the street of the the downtown east side or something. I mean, this can happen anywhere. I mean, we're seeing overdoses all around provinces, cuts across every kind of social strata. Exactly. As mentioned earlier in Surrey uh, this month, uh, three people died of a suspected overdose. Last month, five people overdosed together at a home, at a home. So it tells you that it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter your status in life or in society. This can impact you and I as much as anybody else. Okay. So it's it's great to know that there, there are places people can go to get their drugs tested, as you reported there. Yeah, there's various testing places. There's the Overdose Prevention Society. They have a site in Vancouver, as mentioned, on East Hastings. But there's also testing sites in the suburbs, in in the the Fraser Health area, uh, across Langley, across New Westminster, Burnaby. No matter where you live, there's going to be a center where you can bring your drugs and get it tested. And there's no judgment. They just want to make sure that what you're doing is safe for you. John, thanks for that. You got it. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you. Tomorrow is CKNW's Kids Fund Pledge Day. We may not be gathering in person this year, but we'll still be raising money all day on CKNW tomorrow, bringing you inspiring stories from the BC Kids supported by your donations. Make a difference by making a pledge. 
Details at cknwkidsfund.com. CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day is tomorrow, all day. Really looking forward to that. All right, let's talk about the cost of living in the city of Vancouver now. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has already warned the city is in a financial crisis because of COVID-19. They've asked for help from the feds in the province. Not a lot of help coming. Meanwhile, get set to pay more in the city of Vancouver. A 5% property tax hike is on the way. Of course, the city's climate action emergency plan is on the books and includes mobility pricing, parking permits at your home, and a tripling of the empty homes tax. Now, have a listen to this. This is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking to our own Linda Steele, and she asked him, is this empty homes tax just a tax grab? Ah, I mean, I, I think people are very concerned about, uh, you know, speculation in our, in our, um, in our housing market. I, I think that people know that rents are too high, prices are too high. And, you know, in fact, most people say we've got to go further. And so that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, we'll be looking at more things. We're constantly talking with the federal and provincial governments of monitoring this. Uh, I do have some indication that the federal government is so happy with what we're doing here in Vancouver, they may actually, uh, start giving us access to more data, which may allow us to monitor rent uh, rents uh, on a monthly basis. I'm still waiting to confirm that, but but I mean, you know, we're we're innovating here in the city, and uh, it seems to be working. So that's good news for everybody. Okay, didn't really answer the question there about whether it's a tax grab, but the city has got its hand out in a lot of different places. Let's talk about the cost of living in this city now with my guest Steve Soretsky, real estate analyst. His website is vancitycondoguide.com. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot for coming on. When people talk to you about the cost of living in the city of Vancouver, maybe they're looking for a place to buy in the city, what are they telling you? I mean, it's just an expensive city to live in, and it looks like it's going to get more expensive. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's one of the most unaffordable cities like you know, across the global property market. So um, I think that uh, what we're seeing is a lot of migration out of the city, you know, people that maybe started their lives in Vancouver are looking, you know, especially with younger families are starting to migrate further and further out. So, you know, a lot of those destinations look like North Vancouver has been a huge recipient of that. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more flows into Port Moody, Coquitlam, Burnaby. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just I think people not aren't leaving necessarily by choice out of Vancouver, but by necessity. Uh, and so obviously the cost of living doesn't seem to, I mean, let's call it spade spade. I don't think the cost of living is going to get any more affordable, um, you know, at least by any sort of margin. What about this empty homes tax? What are your thoughts on that? The city proposing to triple the empty homes tax from 1% to 3%. The mayor says it's aimed at property speculators. So if you don't have, uh, if you don't own a home that's just sitting there empty, you don't have anything to worry about, right? But what are your thoughts on that empty homes tax? I mean, I think, like, I understand where people are coming from. Obviously, we had an insanely speculative housing market in 2015, up, upwards to 2017. Uh, a lot of that froth has now been pulled back out of the market. And so I understand that those taxes were politically popular. Um, certainly, they've done a little bit of job in terms of easing up the rental market. But when you kind of look at the numbers, I mean, in 2019, I mean, there's they, the cities declared there were 787 properties declared vacant for 2019. So... When you think about it in the grand scheme of things, I mean, it's not a whole lot of people that are really being captured by the tax. So, uh, I know I look at it and say, well, tripling of that tax on, let's say, maybe 500 properties, to me, is more of just, it's like, you know, the, the, obviously the city is being squeezed for revenues during this, uh, during this recession. I mean, it's an interesting time to be ramping up taxation, um, at a, at, you know, during the sharpest downturn we've seen since World War II. So, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive to what, you know, monetary and fiscal policy is attempting to do. Okay, how about some of the other cost pressures here for people living in the city of Vancouver? Let's talk about the property tax increase recommended here of 5%. And I guess people are supposed to be breathing a sigh of relief here. Whoo, man, it could have been a lot higher than that. Maybe 5% is not bad. But what are your thoughts on that property tax hike? Uh, not surprised. I think it's going to continue to go up regardless of what property values do. I think that the, the the reality is, is is taxation, I think, is going to continue to increase. And I think taxation on, on residential or on, on real estate, where it's an immobile asset, 
uh, I think is the easiest thing for them to tax. And I think that that's going to continue regardless of if, you know, home prices increase or not, they'll find a way to keep those, those tax revenues coming in. Because I think it is the city's largest uh, component of the revenues. Okay, speaking of Steve Soretsky, uh, Vancouver real estate analyst. So, Steve, another one that's got a lot of people talking is is a proposed tax that hasn't really been imposed or inflicted yet, and that is the mobility pricing system that's on the table here as part of the as part of the Vancouver City Hall's climate emergency action plan. Par- parking permits for your own home, so you'd have to pay for a parking permit to park outside your own property. Uh, these are not expected to kick in for another couple of years. There's a, a study period going in on these, but man, even the talk of these type of taxes and tolls and fees have, has got everybody up in arms. I mean, what what are your thoughts on this as, as a real estate guy in a city that's already uh, unaffordable for most people to be talking about putting up a toll ring around the the downtown core and charging people to drive over it? I mean, I think it's I think it's just a I think it's a self fulfilling feedback loop in terms of that you know you're you're creating your own you know you're sowing the seeds of your own demise. It's just essentially that you're just going to continue to see more more and more people forced out of the city. Uh, I think you'll see more and more young, I guess particularly the younger families, right, that are already facing an affordability crunch. Uh, you know, struggling to get onto the housing ladder. I think that you know taxes like this ultimately just push you know a lot of the younger talent out of the city. Um, so and I understand the city's desperate for tax revenues. Obviously, they've been hit hard during this pandemic. But uh, you know, to start to kind of you know these to unveil these programs when you preach you know affordability, I don't really see how this is going to increase affordability for the average person. But again, it is what it is. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's a political game. I mean, they're spending millions studying this thing. I'll be shocked if they actually go through with it, but they'll still spend millions of bucks studying it. But what's the market like out there right now, Steve, in terms of prices, availability, the the amount of properties for sale in Vancouver and in the suburbs? What what are your highlights right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of that that trend that you're hearing you know across the media, which is basically there is this exodus to the suburbs. There are basically people, everybody, you know, particularly during this pandemic, I think it's only exacerbated or sped up these trends. So the trends are people are, are moving further out. They're wanting bigger homes, you know, something that's providing a little bit more value. And so we're seeing, you know, in, in significant activity out in the suburbs. Uh, even in the city, bank, city of Vancouver, you know, the detached single family houses are, are picking up steam. You know, those prices are up. And then where we're seeing the, the largest impact is really, in the downtown core, downtown Vancouver condos, you know, are, are off quite a bit since since the start of this. Um, you have a lot of investors that are selling out. You know, the rental market rents are probably down ten to even upwards of fifteen percent. Uh, so the rental market's been hit pretty hard, and um, so that, that's kind of the overall synopsis of the market right now. All right, Steve. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike.